we're in Genesis 3, in Genesis chapter 3, in our 10th sermon in the book of Genesis. And uh, after this Sunday, we're going to take a a little break, a month-long break from Genesis as we um, immerse ourselves in the season of Advent. Uh, But this morning, we're going to um, briefly close our time in Genesis before we pick it back up in January in Genesis 4, but we're concluding our time in Genesis this year, the closing verses of Genesis chapter 3. And as we do that, let's take a, a moment and, and pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Uh, Father, we, we do ask for your help now. I ask for your help. Marilyn Robinson has said, preaching is, is parsing the broken heart of your people and the loving heart of Jesus Christ. We pray that that would take place here this morning, and that we would leave encouraged and assured in trusting Jesus all the more, exulting in his goodness all the more, um, exulting in his saving work all the more, so that we might go into this world filled with life in Christ, bearing witness to the goodness and the faithfulness and the saving work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Master, our Lord. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the climax of Genesis chapter 3. And Last week, of course, we, we took some time to look at verses 8 to 19 of this chapter. And there we, we saw something of why we live in a world that is all out of sorts. Uh, and of course, that's, that's putting it mildly. We saw why our world is filled with brokenness and pain and frustration. And it's because a curse lies on this world as a result of human sin. And this, this curse we saw affects every aspect of our lives. We're, we're creational beings. And so we see the curse affects our relationship with the rest of the created orders. It's, it's, it's now filled with thorns and thistles and pain and eventual death. Additionally, we're relational beings. We see that the curse affects our relationships with one another in marriage and in parenting, as well as in in every human relationship. Marital, familial, ecclesial, societal strife all comes as a result of what we find here. And furthermore, we're, we're vocational beings. And so we see that the curse affects our vocations and callings in life, making work difficult and frustrating. But this morning, as we consider what is really at the climax of Genesis 3, we turn to see that there is an even more significant relationship that has been ruptured as a result of human sin. Something more primary, more central has been broken here. And this is really, if you follow the brokenness of this world all the way down to its source, is the primary relational brokenness that is at the root of all the heartache we experience in this world. At the root of it all is our relational brokenness with God. Because in addition to in addition to being creational and relational and vocational beings, we are spiritual beings, and so we were made for relationship with God. We were made to know God and to have soul-satisfying communion with Him and live in His relational presence forever, and yet this relationship has been severed as a result of human sin, and thus the reason things are not right in creation and in our relations or in our vocations is because humanity is not right with God. And this morning in our passage, we see the severing of this relationship sealed. 
as humanity is expelled from the garden sanctuary that was our home. And it's tragic and maddening. It's a catastrophic scene. And yet, because our God is a God of grace and mercy and steadfast love, in addition to showing us something about our broken relationship with himself this morning, our passage also shows us something of how God plans to reconcile us and restore us again. And this is good news worth hearing. And so if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, as we listen with open ears and open hearts, with reverence and rejoicing, because this is a word of our God, Genesis 3, and we're reading verses 20 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I want to walk briefly with you this morning through the three main sections of our text. We find one section in verse 20, where we see God graciously prolong human life. And another we see in verse 21 where God kindly provides clothing for Adam and Eve. And in the last section we find in verses 22 through 24, we see humanity expelled from the garden. And we're going to take each of these points in turn, looking at the gracious prolonging, the generous provision, and the greatest privation. First though, we see the gracious prolonging here in verse 20. Our text begins reading, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And of course, uh, this sentence might seem puzzling to us uh, on the surface, but it's not if you look at the original languages here. And so therefore, you know, your copy of Scripture there, uh, the, the translators might have helpfully included a little footnote at the bottom of the page explaining that the Hebrew word here translated as Eve literally means life giver. It's the word cheva. And um, that's not exactly, you got to get the, the guttural uh, stuff coming from your throat there. Chava, right? And and it's this word that's closely related to the Hebrew word for life or living, which is chai. And maybe you've heard um, the Hebrew toast, you know, before you clink your drinks together, you say lachayim, right? It, it's a toast that literally means to life. Well, here, Adam calls his wife Eve in trust and celebration of the fact that God has promised and is permitting the continuation of life. You remember Genesis 3.15, the Lord promised offspring to the woman. He promised offspring, right? God, God promised that he will graciously permit the continuation of human life in the earth. And so Adam here names his wife life giver in trust and celebration of that very promise. 
John Calvin comments on this saying, Upon escaping the immediate threat of death, Adam was heartened by this bit of consolation, and in the name he gave his wife, celebrated that God had been kind to him beyond all hoping, beyond all hoping. And the reason I want to dwell on this for a moment and and not move past this too quickly this morning is because this, this is an enormous grace. And one that we, we probably don't revel in often enough. Remember that the Lord God had said that in the day that Adam and Eve rebelled against him as the living God, that in that day they would surely die. And of course, in a sense, death did come. right? A spiritual death, we've already seen, has come. A spiritual death of guilt and shame and relational separation from God. All has come as a result of sinful human rebellion. And eventually, as we saw last week, that spiritual death will terminate in physical death, wherein humanity returns to the dust from which we were made. And of course, even worse than that. We know from the entirety of the biblical canon that there is not just a temporal death that comes as a result of human sin. No, if, if we do not repent of sin, there is an eternal death in store for us. What Revelation calls the second death, which is eternal suffering and separation from God in a forever burning lake of fire. And that is precisely what we deserve here. That's what we deserve eternally. That's what we deserve immediately. Because as creatures of of dust and dirt, as creatures formed by the loving hand of the living God, we have rebelled against Him and defied Him. We have committed cosmic treason against the holy and everlasting one. We have sought to knock the one true king off of his divine throne and take up our own residence there instead, which is revolting and repulsive after all the kindness he has shown us as creatures of dirt. But what is astounding here is that God, being so gracious and good, for his own plans and purposes, allows human beings to continue to enjoy and imbibe of and inherit the gift of life. Life, to to begin with, was already an undeserved, unearned gift, but it is now an ill-deserved gift. That is, it's not only an undeserved gift, it's a gift given when we deserve the opposite. And yet because of the infinite kindness and patience and grace of God, humanity continues to draw breath into its lungs. God continues, as the apostle so beautifully puts it in Acts 17, 25, to give to all mankind life and breath and everything. And that is truly astounding. It's astounding, as Matthew Henry puts it, that man was sent only to till the ground out of which he was taken, that he was sent to a place of toil, not a place of torment. That he was sent to the ground, not to the grave. To the workhouse, not to the dungeon, not to the prison house. To hold the plow, not to drag the chain. It's astounding. But as Psalm 103 says of the Lord God, he, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He is patient. He is kind. He is gracious, and so he continues to give the gift of life to rebels and traitors like us. And what does this mean? Well, this means that every day you wake up, sinner, 
you have reason to give thanks to God. Every day you are above ground. You have been granted immeasurable mercy from an immeasurably merciful God. So I'm, I'm convinced that we live in one of the most entitled and spoiled times and places in all of human history. But one thing we need to get straight this morning is that we are not entitled to life from God. Life is not a right. It's a gift. Life is not owed. It's grace. And so every day we're given the gift of waking up ought to be a day wherein we take in a big belly full of air and exhale praise and thanksgiving to the God who gives it to us. Every day ought to be a day in which we awaken ready to serve and glorify and pour out our lives to God for the sake of others with whatever strength He gives us. And maybe, maybe for some of you seasoned Christians here, this all seems rather elementary to you and basic. I would just ask you, when was the last time you poured out praise and thanksgiving to God for the life in your body and the breath in your lungs? When was the last time you raised your voice to God with heartfelt gratitude for the life He has given you? He's not dealt with you or me as our sins deserve. And we see this in the gracious prolonging. In addition, we see it next in the generous provision. Verse 21 goes on to tell us that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Of course, we remember that initially after the rebellion and fall, Adam and Eve realized that they were, they were naked and they were ashamed. They, they were awakened to and aware of their guilt and sin. And so they, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, didn't they? And of course, this is really a a vivid illustration of all of our insufficient attempts at self-covering and self-atonement as fallen humanity. All of us, as a result of being made in the image and likeness of God, are moral beings. And now, after having taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, our, our consciences are weighed down with the reality of our sin and shame and inner deadness. And in order to relieve ourselves of these felt burdens, we contrive as human beings a plethora of creative ways to cover ourselves. We even do this as Christians. We might try to do it by presenting ourselves on social media, putting forth our perfectly curated lives, depicting ourselves as ideal families, as consummate Christians, as accomplished spouses and parents, all the while dead and guilty and ashamed. We might do it busying ourselves with church activities, subconsciously feeling that as long as we can keep ourselves busy, we can ignore the real problem of our sin and inner deadness as well as put forth a good image for others. We might do it sometimes by accumulating lots of of biblical knowledge and getting all of our doctrinal ducks in a row and putting ourselves forth as, as experts and appearing very principled, all the while keeping God at arm's length because our sin problem just seems too close, too personal, too real. All fig leaves. Inadequate to actually deal with the problem of our utter need before a holy God. But what Adam and Eve cannot do God does. It says that he makes for them garments of skins and clothes them. 
And in a very immediate and practical sense, this this is a generous provision. Adam and Eve, they're about to be sent out, driven out into a harsh world filled with weather and elements and hardship and thus clothing. It'll be a necessity for their warmth and comfort and covering. And they probably spent many a night generously warmed by those very garments. But there's more going on here than just this immediate and practical peace. You see, the the only way that God could provide these skins is if there is a sacrifice beforehand. Is if an animal's blood was shed and its body was broken in order to provide the skins for Adam and for Eve to wear. And the original readers of this narrative would have inevitably seen this because in addition to receiving this narrative from the pen of Moses, they received instructions along with it for animal sacrifice in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle, which we'll see in a moment, was meant to depict the garden that Adam and Eve were being expelled from. And in these sacrifices, the Israelites were to begin to see and to feel something of paramount and principal importance, and that something is this, that sin demands judgment. That sin demands death. Sin demands sacrifice. Sin against God demands atonement. If our sins are going to actually ever be forgiven and covered in this world, sacrifice and atonement must be made. Hebrews 9.22 puts it, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The theologians would call this doctrine the necessity of the atonement. The necessity of the atonement. Atonement we see from Genesis 3.21 on in the Bible is an absolute necessity. And there's really two prime reasons that atonement is a necessity. For one, as we've already seen, it's because our God is a good and gracious and loving God. 1 John 4.8 would tell us that God is love. He, he is a God who delights in doing good to us as His people. And in fact, if we're prepared to believe what the Bible says about God's sovereign choice of us in eternity past, if we trust what Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 say, that God chose us before the foundation of the world to be His beloved children, if before the foundation of the world, Christian, you were in the heart of God, beloved before you were ever named, then how could our forgiveness not be an absolute necessity? If God so delights in rescuing and saving and forgiving us as His own, how could our rescue not be a certainty? No, you... You see, God is a Savior, and therefore He must save. And yet on the other hand, in addition to being a Savior, God is also a judge. He is love, but He is also a God who is just and holy too. He is a God who is matchless in majesty and peerless in His purity. And he therefore will not and cannot tolerate evil and wickedness. He is not a senile God who winks at the wickedness of his chosen. No, if he were to simply overlook our vile depravity, our evil and wickedness, without bringing forth divine justice, he would cease to be just. And if he were to cease to be just, he would cease to be God. To sum it up, we, we only need to remember what the most repeated Words in the whole of the Bible says about our God. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, it says that He is the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He is love and he is just. He is savior and he is judge. And so atonement must be made. Sin demands sacrifice. Sin must be atoned for so that God's justice is satisfied and our forgiveness secured. So that God might be the just and the justifier of those he calls his own. And what we see in Genesis 3.21 here is that by his unfathomable grace and generosity, what God demands, he supplies. He does not deal with you or me as our sins deserve. Instead, he makes sacrifice and clothes his naked creatures in skin with his generous provision, which of course prefigures a more resplendent reality to come. Which brings us lastly to the greatest privation. And here we see Adam and Eve sent out from the garden paradise in which God placed them. And thereby are sentenced to life without their, their primary need, our primary need. Verse 22 continues the story. The triune God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And of course, in, in those words, we recall something of what we saw a couple of Sundays ago, that, that Satan had told a half-truth to Adam and Eve. He told a, a half-truth to them in a complete lie. And I don't know how that math works. But he told them that in partaking of the tree that they would become like God. And in partaking of the tree, they, they did become like God, we see here, in knowing good and evil. And yet as renowned Bible teacher Donald Barnhouse put it, you know, a pilot could say, about a man who jumps out of an airplane at 20,000 feet, that he has become like the pilot in knowing altitude and gravity. And yet the man who jumped, unlike the pilot, can't maintain his altitude or resist his gravity and thus plummets to his death. And just so, humanity in our endeavor to replace God as God's, we have descended into our death and thus made ourselves ineligible for eternal life. And so the Lord God goes on to say, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see here, it's... it's it is unacceptable, it is intolerable to God that humanity should have access to the reward, have access to the tree of life now. As we discussed when in Genesis 2, it seems that the, the tree of life in some way would communicate the gift of eternal life to humanity. It is the, the symbolic and sacramental means through which God communicates eternal life to his own. And that's why those in Christ are seen to gain access to the tree of life at the end of the age in Revelation 22. But humanity, apart from Christ, is now barred from access to this means of grace. 
Humanity is driven out from the garden and placed at the entrance is a, a, a guardian angel, a cherubim, a fearsome creature. And what's more, there's a flaming sword that in some way, shape, or form turns every which way and it represents divine wrath that will slay anyone who seeks to enter. And yet I want us to see here that humanity is exiled from more than just the tree of life. And being expelled from the garden, we lose access to more than the tree of life. More importantly, we lose access to the relational presence of the living God, the God who is himself our life. And you see this very clearly if you continue to read on in the first five books of the Bible, which constitute really a a single book with multiple volumes. If you keep reading on through Genesis and into Exodus, you see God give instructions for constructing a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is really a a small-scale replica of Eden. Biblical scholar G.K. Beale calls the tabernacle Eden remixed. And there are a number of ways in which the tabernacle is an an echo of Eden, but among them is one of the fearsome things you would behold if you went inside. In the tabernacle, there are uh, several rooms filled with imagery hearkening back to the Edenic paradise here. And deep within the tabernacle is a room called the Holy of Holies. And it's in the Holy of Holies that the relational presence of God was said to dwell among God's people. Only it's curtained off. And embroidered on that curtain is the image of a cherubim. There, as it were, standing guard, keeping watch over the place wherein God's relational presence dwells. And what's that communicating? It's telling us that part of what we're being exiled from here, what we're ultimately being exiled from here, is communion with the living God and His relational presence. Losing what is most central and essential to us as humanity. Knowing and experiencing the presence of the living God. It occurs to me that this is perhaps why we're barred from the tree of life here. Because eternal life, while being separated from God, far from being heaven, would become an eternal hell. And so before we gain access to the tree of life again, we need to be reconciled to the God of life. Because that and that alone will get at the root of our and the world's brokenness. As St. Augustine has said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The reason humanity is not at peace, the reason humanity lacks peace within and without, the reason our hearts and lives in this world are so marred and marked by pain and frustration and death is because humanity is not at peace with God. Humanity is separated and severed from relationship with God, the God who is our joy and peace and life. We are exiled from his relational presence and nothing will be right until that is remedied. Here's the good news. God has graciously made a way for us to be reconciled to him again. And he has done it through the coming and the cross of his dear son. 
As we saw last week in Genesis 3.15, that is precisely what He has promised to us. And in this, Eve is not just here the mother of all the living as it pertains to our temporal life we all live now. No, she is the mother of all living as it pertains to eternal life because there will come from her an offspring who will eventually come and redeem us and crush the serpent's head. But what's more is that we actually get a picture of how he's going to do this here in verse 21. And as we saw earlier, is the first of many occurrences of animal sacrifice in the Bible. And we see sacrifice there because Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And yet as Hebrews 10.4 goes on to say, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No bleeding bull, no bleeding beast, no hyssop branch, no priest, no running brook, no flooding stream can wash away this stain from me. No, we need a more precious sacrifice. We need a more costly sacrifice. We need a more worthy sacrifice. These animals are mere pictures of the sacrifice we need. And yet, just as God provided the sacrifice here in Genesis 3.21, so he provided the sacrifice we truly and ultimately need in his son. And the one who came down from heaven and put on human vesture for us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And after living the perfect life, the obedient life, the worthy life, the life that Adam and Eve and you and I ought to have lived, he was driven out to be exiled, to be sacrificed, to be slain on a tree. And he died. And in his death, he quenched the flaming sword of God's righteous indignation toward us. And now, just as the skins of these slain animals clothed Adam and Eve's nakedness and covered their shame and guilt, just so the perfect righteousness of Christ is now said to clothe those of us who place our faith and trust in Jesus. In Isaiah 61.10, God's people are said to rejoice in this inexplicable grace, saying, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. And the righteousness with which we are now clothed is none other than the very perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ, which means that now, when we repent and place our trust in Christ, we no longer need to try to cover our sin and guilt and shame because our sin and guilt and shame no longer define us. No, God does not treat us as our sins deserve, but instead now treats us as the righteousness of our Savior deserves. Our shame, it's, it's covered. Our guilt, it's taken away. Our sin, it's atoned for. We stand as righteous and acceptable and clothed before the God who made us and calls us his own. And all we must do to receive this gracious gift, this generous provision is foreshadowed for us here in verse 20. Where Adam, in naming his wife Eve, simply takes God at his word. He believes God's promise and trusts God's promise. 
In Genesis 3.15, God promised that redemption would come through the woman's offspring. And in Genesis 3.20, Adam takes God at his word and trusts God's promise and names Eve life giver. It's all we must do to receive God's gift of atonement and covering this morning, discarding our unpathetic attempts to cover ourselves and take God at his word. For all who do, we are promised this, death is not our end. Yes, we are walking and will walk through this wilderness life of toil and pain and heartache. And one day we will return to the dust from which we were made. But as Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, though we die, yet shall we live. Because just as the baptisms we witnessed and celebrated today portray one day we will rise again to live with our Savior. When he returns to grant us access to the tree of life, we will live forever with him in a new heaven and a new earth where the curse is forever broken. And the blessing of eternal life is ours forevermore. He will bring us forth to eternal life with himself in a creation brought to perfect peace where all of our relationships with one another will be brought to perfect harmony, perfectly healed, where we will work and keep the earth without all the toil and pain and frustrations the thorns and thistles of this life bring, and best of all, where we will see God and know Him and be known by Him as we dwell in His relational presence forever. That is our hope. And it is here promised by God. And it has been paid for in history by Jesus Christ. Because our God does not deal with us as our sins deserve. Let's pray. Father, we give you great praise and thanks this morning for the gift of life. That we get to draw breath in these lungs and continue to live another day. We deserve, it, is, it would be fair for you to give us death. And yet you are merciful beyond our comprehension. And even more, we celebrate this morning that you have sent Christ to give us eternal life. That just as the, the, the body of this slain animal here in Genesis 3 and its blood was shed, so Christ's body and blood have been shed so that atonement might be made for us. We thank you that he has risen. He's gone before us. and will one day grant us eternal life to be raised like himself. We pray that as we come to the table now, that these realities, these elements, this sacrament, would press those realities more deeply into our hearts so that we might be strengthened and nourished and encouraged by them as we're sent out into this world to bear witness to the realities they portray. Strengthen us for this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.